Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hey guys, Ready or Not 2024 is here, and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election. We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it just means the absolute world to have your support. But enough with that, let's get to the show. Good morning, everybody. Happy Tuesday. We have an amazing show for everybody today. What do we have, Crystal? Indeed, we do. Lots to get to this morning. Uh, Israeli officials claiming they are shifting to a different phase of the conflict as they are floating yet another supposed plan for what may come in the day after. We will break all of that down for you. We also have a member of the Knesset who is signing on to South Africa's claims of genocide against Israel, leading to huge political ramifications for him. There's a whole freakout going on over that, so we'll break that down for you. Also got some uh, interesting ways that that conflict is flowing into domestic politics, protesters disrupting Joe Biden during a speech down in Charleston, so we'll show you those images. We also have uh, the Iowa caucuses next week. Next week. And a new poll is showing Nikki Haley surging into a single-digit deficit with Trump in New Hampshire. So she is definitely surging, closing the gap. Is it enough? Is it too late? All of that. We'll show you their closing ads as well as they head into Iowa. A lot of interesting stuff going on there. Also have some updates for you as we're learning more about what may have caused that door to blow off of a jet while they were in the air. This was the subject of Sagar's monologue yesterday, so we're getting a little bit of insight into what the hell may be going on there, and it is not good news. We also have some media updates for you. Um, Mehdi Hassan out at MSNBC. He has chosen to leave after his show was canceled, so we will break down the reasons why, perhaps, um, he was sidelined there. Also excited to talk to Jeff Stein. He has a new podcast breaking down the history of uh, abolitionist John Brown, which is really fascinating. I highly recommend. Yeah, it's going to be fun to talk to him about that. Uh, before we get to that, though, uh, if you guys can help us out and sign up for a premium membership, we've got our RFK Junior Focus Group that is going to be happening on Thursday. Our crew is going there. We're going to be filming it. Our great mod moderator James Johnson and our friends over at JLP Partners, but these do cost a lot of money, so if you can help us out, sign up for a premium membership. And 
And we actually are going to allow premium members, you guys can submit questions um, that we will take into consideration to ask for the focus group. You can do it in the AMA section of the website. So if you would like to try and submit one, you can become a premium member or existing members can do that as well. We always want to try and keep this, uh, you know, we want to keep it within the BP universe just to show (laughs) that we're a little bit different over here. So anyway, breakingpoints.com if you can help us out. Yeah, and we're formulating those questions and ideas now. So go ahead and send them in if you have ideas of what you want to know from uh, RFK Jr. supporters. All right, let's go ahead and get to the very latest out of Israel. Put this up on the screen from the Wall Street Journal. This was quite an extraordinary interview overall that uh, the Israeli defense minister, Yoav Gallant, gave. Uh, The headline here, Israel plans for next phase of Gaza war, defense minister says. And uh, in this piece, they kind of buried the lead. (laughs) So Gallant is floating, and this is not official government policy, but this is what he's floating. He says, as he sees it, a multinational task force should be set up in the day after in Gaza, led by the U.S., with European and Middle Eastern partners, they should oversee the rehabilitation of Gaza. Um, this, of course, comes after last week you had those far-right ministers, Smotrich and Ben Gavir, making very clear that they believe the appropriate day-after plan in Gaza is ethnic cleansing. Of course, we've had Netanyahu reports that he is interested in the same. We've had multiple. Uh, we've had a, a plan come out from a government ministry laying out three different options, and the one that they said they preferred the most was pushing Palestinians out of Gaza, the idea being basically to make all of Gaza uninhabitable, mission accomplished there, and then to pressure the U.S. and others that this is the humanitarian solution is to forcibly remove Palestinians from the Gaza Strip. I think it's worth noting in terms of Yoav Gallant, um, with regards to this war, he has been hand in glove with Netanyahu. He actually at one point was fired by Netanyahu. I don't know if you remember this. It sparked huge protests over the uh, judicial coup that Netanyahu was pushing through that is now in dispute, the Supreme Court of the country um, overturning that and causing yet another crisis because of that. So there's been friction with them uh, on the past. There's more details of what Yoav Gallant is floating here in The Guardian. Let's go ahead and put this up on the screen. They said, under Gallant's plan, which is not official policy and has yet to be submitted to other ministers, Israel's offensive in Gaza would continue until hostages taken on October 7th were freed and Hamas's military and governing capabilities dismantled. Then the outline says a new phase would begin during which Hamas will not control Gaza and will not pose a security threat um, with unspecified Palestinian bodies, apparently local civil servants or communal leaders assuming the territory's governance. Gallant said that Israel would reserve its right to operate inside the territory, but there would be no Israeli civilian presence in the Gaza Strip after the goals of war have been achieved. Gaza residents are Palestinian, therefore Palestinian bodies will be in charge with the condition that there will be no hostile actions or threats against the state of Israel. Earlier this week, Israeli media reported military and intelligence officials favored dividing Gaza into regions and subregions with civil administration and the distribution of humanitarian aid in each area entrusted to local leaders seen as trustworthy many people describing this as sort of a Bantustan plan um, relating it to the ghettos that were established in South Africa. Yeah, the biggest problem that we have with this entire thing is it's obvious that uh, they don't have a unified plan that they agree on, and their most convenient one is to offload the responsibility onto the United States. And the saddest thing, Crystal, is I cannot rule out that our people, our leaders, are not dumb enough to actually want to sign up to something like that. They're like, oh, well, it would just be too disruptive. It's like, absolutely not. Israel is responsible for this. They need to pay 
for all of the reconstruction, and they also are the ones who need to pay for administration. And I think that the reason that they are trying to get out right now is because, Crystal, they, you know, we covered this. They had 100-something soldiers who were wounded in a single day mm -hmm. yesterday. The IDF announced this morning that nine of them were killed just yesterday, yesterday, that were killed inside of Gaza. That was not just included in the Hezbollah attacks. We need to understand here that the occupation, and, and actually, if I went and I read the descriptions of the IDF soldiers who were all killed, they were all in combat engineers brigades, meaning that they were involved in demolition or some sort of occupation-like activity. This is where I believe the vast majority of their future casualties are all going to come from. And if you read again the incidents, ambushed in Khan Yunis, ambushed in Gaza City, involved in a demolition activity, they want us, the Europeans and the Middle Eastern partners, to somehow be responsible and to catch all of the flack, the bullets, and eventually elevate us to something called primary occupation status. Absolutely not. And I think that they might be, might be realizing the nightmare that they've now signed themselves up for. Of course, the preferred solution for the most right-wing ministers is going to be ethnic cleansing, but it becomes clear that they're, I think they are starting to see what they have created and that mess, and they're going to try to extricate themselves by pushing the bill onto the United States, to the UN and others, which I think is outrageous. I mean, they are the ones who have to, they should bear 100% of the cost for all of this. Ab, not one dollar of this should come from the US. So I read it differently. Yeah. Um, this plan by Yoav Gallant, which there's a reason why I floated that there was previously mm -hmm. tension and distance between him and Netanyahu, I don't think that this really is representative whatsoever of mm -hmm. what the Israeli government really wants to do. Remember, the U.S. position is supposedly that, you know, what we want is the Palestinian Authority to be bolstered, to um, be enabled to take some governing role in Gaza, and then for a two-state solution process to be seriously undertaken. There is zero appetite for that Correct. in the Israeli government. And even Yoav Gallant, who is, sorry, uh, based on his comments around this world, war, a total psycho, but he's what counts for like a moderate in this administration. Um, even he doesn't mention the Palestinian Authority mm. or any of the things that the U.S. is allegedly pushing for here. I think what happened is you have not just Smotrich, not just Ben Gavir, but Netanyahu, Herzog, you can read through the list of uh, Israeli cabinet members and Likud party members and military officials and journalists and commentators who are all pushing the ethnic cleansing plan. You can look at the polling of Jewish Israelis who overwhelmingly think that is the right solution. Mm -hmm. And so you had this burgeoning pressure because they said it too many times, too clearly and too out loud, where even the US felt the need to put out this little statement of like, oh, we disagree with this, et cetera, et cetera. So I view this plan less as a real serious idea of what they want to do than a bit of ass covering of mm. like, oh, no, that's not really representative of what we want. Look, here's another idea that we're floating out there. And by the way, they went ahead to make sure that idea was like also completely unpalatable to the U.S., um, putting the uh, assignment for reconstruction of Gaza and some sort of oversight of Gaza onto the U.S. and to the U.N. So that's how I read this um, in terms of, you know, the dynamics and the, the push and pull mm. supposedly between the U.S. and the Israelis. I think it's very clear based on the actions in the Strip 
based on the comments from everyone from Netanyahu on down, including Smotrich, including Ben Gavir, what they really want is the ethnic cleansing plan. That is what they have been executing effectively, and that they are just floating this option as like a bit of uh, public ass covering. Yeah, you may, you may certainly be right. I, I, I do think that they're. I think actually this seems more likely to me just because of the outrageous. I mean, this just no, in my opinion, I do not think it would be a palatable situation, both to America, to Egypt, to all these other uh, Middle Eastern countries. I think a full-scale regional war would be more likely than acceptance of a genuine ethnic cleansing, at least in terms of expulsion from the Gaza Strip. Now, starvation and all that, that's a different story. And certainly because we're in something like that. I guess the net effect doesn't necessarily matter, but you know, this seems to me as if something that could arrive, sadly, as some middle ground solution, quote unquote, as horrible and awful as it would be, I think for everybody involved. Now, let's go and put this next one, please, up on the screen because this highlights the uh, expanding nature of the conversation. Because we're here talking right now about Gaza, but the likelihood right now of the regional war, which we touched on yesterday, demonstrates that these people are hell-bent on expanding the war, largely, I believe, to be able to keep their hold on power because, of course, the Israeli people, you know, Netanyahu's got, what, a 4 6% approval rating? Mm -hmm. But as long as this thing goes on, it's better off for him. And he says that to the Wall Street Journal that Hezbollah knows, quote, we can copy and paste Gaza to Beirut. Now, there is zero question in my mind, and I'm curious what you think, that a copy and paste of Gaza to Beirut would erupt in a full-scale regional war. Yeah. Because of Hezbollah, because of Iran, and certainly because Lebanon is a sovereign nation with partners and allies in the region. They're just already, we're at such a massive breaking point in terms of the relations between Jordan and Israel, Jordan, the United States, Egypt, and others. If they were to do that and effectively declare war on the nation of Lebanon with Hezbollah somehow caught in between, I just don't have any doubt in my mind it would erupt and the U.S. would almost certainly become involved. So uh, first of all, the idea is a fantasy, but disturbingly, the more that they begin to talk this way, it just feels like 2002 all over again. Put the next one, please, up on the screen because it, the way that they talk here, he says, my basic view is that we are fighting an axis, not a single enemy. Iran is building up military power around Israel in order to use it. It's based the exact same playbook, Crystal, of they've you know sh uh, shoddily you know tempted their so-called mission post-October 7th in Gaza. They're realizing already that this is not going the way that they wanted it to be, and they're trying to sell it to the public. So now, just like President George W. Bush did, in 2002, the axis of evil becomes a thing, and now we're starting to beat the drum mm -hmm. and towards Hezbollah. And then we've all seen this movie before, but America doesn't have, I think, the courage or really the resolve to stand up and just be like, "This is this is not going to happen." You know, and we actually, you know, put your finger or whatever on the scale, and we just seem to be incredibly impotent in our handling of this entire situation, which is humiliating, honestly. Especially if we do get involved in this war, it will be 100% on Joe Biden. And it is yeah. 100% yeah. on Joe Biden. I mean, they, they have completely bypassed Congress. These, you know, national security Democrats who were like former CIA right. agents. Right. And Even they're freaking out. They're the yeah. one, yeah, yeah, Alyssa Slotkin and these people and um, former, you know, uh, people who served in the military as well. Mm. They're looking at this situation. They're saying this is a potential disaster for us. You have, as we covered yesterday, defense officials uh, furiously leaking to the Washington Post and the Huffington Post and seemingly anyone who will listen to them of like, you know, they don't really care about the human toll being, uh, you know, the horrors that are being inflicted on the people in Gaza. But they're looking at this and they, they said, every single war game that we, scenario that we play out, 
with an escalated war against Hezbollah is a total disaster. It mm -hmm. ends in complete nightmare. So it's not like we're the ones that are just inventing this out of whole cloth. Our own military and defense establishment is playing this out and saying this does not end in a good place. And yet you see all these articles about this hand-wringing and nowhere in there do they explain that there is one very clear way to ratchet down the hostilities, and that's to have a negotiated settlement and a ceasefire for the fighting and the bombing of Gaza to stop. That gets us out of this whole entire mess. So um, in any case, there's also this uh, these comments from Yoav Gallant and others in the uh, Israeli uh, political class and the defense establishment in Israel that they're, quote, shifting to a new phase of the war. It's going to be less, you know, just like all-out assault and more targeted. We'll see. We have not seen that yet. There've been they've been sort of floating this since the beginning of the year, and yet the we've seen some of the deadliest strikes and deadliest days in this entire assault. Um, even in the new year. And they mentioned in particular, you know, that there's going to be issues with Rafa, where uh, I think over a million Palestinians have gathered at right. this point. That's, right. That's at the border with Egypt there. And now, you know, originally it was, oh, Hamas's command and control is in the north and we've got to flatten that and destroy. Well, they did that. That's destroyed. It's uninhabitable. There's basically nothing left there. Um, then it was, oh, we got to move to Khan Yunus. That's where Hamas really is. Okay, well, they've destroyed neighborhoods in Khan Yunus. Massive death tolls there. Now they're saying, oh, well, really, they're in Rafa, so we've got to move there. And, um, you know, the human toll is going to be absolutely devastating. And at the same time, the humiliation for the U.S. just continues. Put this next yes. piece up on the screen. Israel to tell Antony Blinken, who is in the region right now, that Palestinians cannot return to the north of Gaza without a hostage deal. Now, hanging over this elephant in the room that doesn't even get mentioned in this piece, I, I believe, is that there is basically nothing to return to in the north of Gaza in terms of any sort of civilian infrastructure that can sustain life. But let me read you a little bit of this. They say the big picture, making progress toward the return of Palestinians to their homes and ensuring they are not forcibly displaced from Gaza is one of the goals of Blinken's talks in Israel this week. The Biden administration has expressed concerns over recent statements from some radical right-wing Israeli ministers who have called for Palestinians to be driven on a strip. It's not only them, by the way. What they're saying, Palestinian civilians must be able to return home as soon as conditions allow, Blinken said on Sunday in a press conference with the Qatari prime minister in Doha. They cannot and they must not be pressed to leave Gaza, he stressed. But behind the scenes, Israeli sources told Axios, while Israel doesn't in principle oppose allowing Palestinians to return to northern Gaza, officials will tell Blinken such a move needs to be part of a new hostage deal. Let me be clear. Hamas should release the hostages. No doubt about it. It is a war crime to hold, especially civilians, as hostages. It is unacceptable. They should release the hostages. What is Israel doing here? They're basically holding the people of Gaza hostage based on these hostilities and demanding that their wants and needs be fulfilled in order for people just to return to the rubble of their homes that have been overwhelmingly destroyed in northern Gaza. And as I said before, Sagar, I mean, it's just the it's so clear that the U.S.'s words and rhetoric mean yeah, zero. nothing right. because they see that they can do what they want. And, you know, they keep pushing like, OK, what if we attack a hospital? What, what if we do that? Will they go along with us? Yes, we will. What if we flatten all of northern Gaza? What if we impose a complete siege? What if half of Gaza residents are starving? Will they do anything to push back? The answer has been no. 
So why would they listen to our little pearl-clutching, hand-wringing comments about what we want to see when there's zero willingness to back it up with anything other than those words? No, I can't disagree with that at all. I think it's an outrageous decision and a statement. And to be communicated again to the United States, two wrongs don't make a right. I mean, we saw the videos just yesterday of those Israeli girls who are still being held hostage. They got, like, blood on their face or whatever. It's horrifying. But then, you know, you can't erase and say that their captivity is going to be subject to a million or so people who are living in a tent, you know, on the brink of starvation by the border. I mean, this is, you know, insanity. And then, as you said, in, uh, in tandem, the, where are they supposed to go? I mean, the more and more I look at this, I'm just genuinely so humiliated on behalf of the United States of America. Like, if you go back and you read and you think about the way that even past presidents, who, you know, not necessarily the strongest people, there's a famous quote of Bill Clinton behind the scenes saying, who the hell does this guy think he is when talking about the Israeli prime minister? And he said, you know, who needs to remind who of who the superpower is here? And as, you know, increasingly, it's clear they don't care or listen to what we think. And and by the way, that's fine. They're a sovereign country that can do what they want. But, you know, when they're also got their hand out like this, asking for emergency replenishment of their artillery shells and their weapons and all this other stuff, then, you know, we got to have a little bit of respect here and just say that this is clearly, look, take Israel out of it. And this has been my entire, you know, position from day one. Israel, Palestine, I'll put it all out of it because I don't, I don't like to think about quote unquote humanitarian stuff because you get really bogged down in the details. Strategically, this has been a disaster. This is high intentions for us in the Middle East. We start to redirect tens of billions of dollars of military resources. We stand on the brink of a regional war in a, in a region that we already lost two wars that we've just come 25 years or so off of. What possible reason would we want to get involved in this? And the humanitarian situation is both upstream and downstream of this, which is why we should be absolutely focused on making sure this doesn't happen. And, you know, Israel cannot be talking about their hostages and the emotional situation of this and then try to hold hostage the million or so people who have been kicked out of their homes. It, it, it just it, it doesn't it doesn't bear any scrutiny. And if anything, it's just going to multiply the criticism against them because you know let's be honest, the sheer numbers of the Palestinians is what ten thousand to one of the Israeli hostages that are being held here. And the sympathy that they had on October seventh has evaporated. You know, in the entire eyes of the world, oh, yeah. I saw it all over Europe. Just you know, just so people know. When I was in Europe, the amount of Palestinian flag and uh, activism stuff that was scrolled in public spaces. I was at the International Red Cross Museum in Geneva, Switzerland. It had a big thing. It's like, you know, war crimes and are wrong and everything. Even war has rules. I sent you that photo. Uh, this is all over the world. You know, it's only right here in America that, you know, our discourse is so screwed up. I don't know what it is. I read an yeah. uh, editorial or op-ed, I guess, in Haaretz, which, of course, is an Israeli uh, media outlet that was saying, listen, whether you agree with the genocide charges or not, we went through people accusing us of being occupiers to accusing us of ethnic cleansing and genocide. Mm -hmm. That's where we are, mm -hmm. and with plenty of merit. So, yeah, I mean, in terms of Israeli security, in terms of any sort of humanitarianism, in terms of any sort of international law, in terms of any desires for peace and not uh, blowing this up into a larger conflagration, it's all a complete and utter Disaster. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. 
Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular's single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. At the same time, um, there is some real friction in Israeli society, especially over what happened on October 7th, how October 7th um, happened in the first place, right. why it was not disrupted, especially now that we know there were plenty of indications in advance um, that this was going to happen. Then the response itself has come under incredible scrutiny. And um, this is getting, this is really uh, blowing up at this point. So put this up on the screen. There's now demands for an investigation into what exactly happened at Kibbutz Biari in what they're describing as the tank fire Incident. Now, I wanted to make sure to cover this because we haven't covered it yet. There have been inklings for a while, but we wanted to wait until there was more concrete mm -hmm. proof that some of the deaths that occurred at this kibbutz were caused by Israeli military fire. Now, let me be clear. The overwhelming number of deaths on October 7th, as far as the evidence shows, was con committed by Hamas. This is not an attempt to uh, undercut the horrors of that day or the horrors and atrocities that were committed by Hamas. However, um, let me read from this piece in Haaretz. They say there is no demand more justified than that of relatives of people killed in the hostage incident at Kibbutz Biari to investigate the Army's actions and to receive answers about the circumstances of their loved one's death. Moreover, the families sh should not have to make this demand alone. The IDF must give them and the public an explanation for the Army's conduct on October 7th outside the home of Pessy Cohen. Above all, it must disclose whether the so-called Hannibal Directive, and I'll explain what that is in a moment, which states that hostage-taking should be prevented even at the price of harm to our own forces, was used against the Israelis held hostage in that 
house. So they're saying what happened here and the, the actual direct cause of death of so many people um, at Pessy Cohen's house in this kibbutz, this needs to be investigated. So what is the Hannibal directive as a little bit of uh, context and backstory here? Put this up on the screen from Al Jazeera. So the directive known as the Hannibal procedure or Hannibal protocol is an Israeli military policy that stipulates the use of maximum force in the event of a soldier being potentially kidnapped. Um, this is according to a former soldier and co-founder of an activist group called Breaking the Silence. Quote, you will open fire without constraints in order to prevent the abduction, he said, adding that the use of force is carried out even at the risk of killing a captive soldier. In addition to firing at the abductor, soldiers can fire at junctions, roads, highways, and other pathways opponents may take a kidnapped soldier through. The Israeli military has denied the interpretation of the directive, um, but there have been other indications and reports in the past that this has been utilized. And so the allegation here is that um, the uh, people who were on the, the scene, the IDF officers who were on the scene, rather than risking people being taken hostage, which we know is a very emotional issue, they decided to fire on this house, killing almost everybody who was inside. This is now based on a New York Times report, put this up on the screen, um, of what unfolded at that, uh, at that kibbutz. The headline here is the day Hamas came. And this is the pivotal moment. So they're interviewing uh, this man, General Hiram, who was sort of leading the action or directing the action from the Israeli side at this kibbutz. And um, in the story, they write, as the dusk approached, the SWAT commander and General Hiram began to argue. The SWAT commander thought more kidnappers might surrender. The general wanted the situation resolved by nightfall. Minutes later, the militants launched a rocket-propelled grenade, according to the general and other witnesses who spoke to the Times. Quote, the negotiations are over, General Hiram recalled telling the tank commander, break in even at the cost of civilian casualties. The tank fired two light shells at the house. Shrapnel from the second shell hit Mr. Dagan, that's one of the hostages, in the neck, severing an artery and killing him, according to his wife, who was one of the only people who survived here. During the melee, the kidnappers were also killed. Only two of the 14 hostages survived. So uh, one of them, this uh, Ms. Porat, who they indicate there, she had actually, one of the kidnappers surrendered, took off his shirt to show he wasn't wearing a suicide vest, took her with him as a, a human shield, mm -hmm. really, and brought, brought her out. That's how she was able to survive. And part of what's critical about that context is then the Israeli military officers who are there on the scene, they interview her, and she tells them there are 14 hostages in this house. So it's not like they didn't know that there were civilians there in the house when General Hiram tells the New York Times he gives the order to fire for the tank to fire on this house and everyone save for one person who remained inside is ultimately killed. So that is causing a huge uh, fracture within Israeli society about what the hell happened on October 7th and how many of the people who were killed were actually at the hands of the IDF executing the quote-unquote Hannibal directive. Yeah, that's the big question. I mean, there's been a lot of discussion about this now for months on end and yeah. a lot of, you know, speculation about helicopter fire and the level of casualties and all of that. But it's like you said, Crystal, we, we wanted, really wanted to wait for, like, ironclad evidence. Yeah. You've got a general here who says he ordered them to go in regardless. That's of right. casualties. Pretty so ironclad. That's pretty good <laughs> uh, in terms of evidence. And then you've got here the Haaretz investigation citing the people inside the community who said, 
today and ask whether the directive was in play or not. And that's obviously one of those where you should have a real question about that in a democracy or in a society. Imagine if that was U.S. policy. And by the way, it's a legitimate one. It's, it's a, I, I could honestly, I could see both sides. There was that whole debate when people thought Dick Cheney might have shot down United 93. And it's like, well, you know, are you going to allow it to crash into the Capitol? What do you do? How can you say there are innocent lives? It's a genuine moral quandary for a leader. And that's why you should have practices and all these other things in place for decision making. Clearly, they had that in the past. Hostages have been a very emotional problem for Israel many, many times. And it wouldn't be outside the realm of possibility that that's something that they did. And it does appear, at least in a small instance, that they did it almost certainly here in this case. But you get to debate that, you know, in a democratic society. And I think that's the big question. Unfortunately, and I'm really glad the way that you phrase it, at the beginning, no one's trying to say that the vast majority of the civil, you know, people who were killed were not done so by Hamas. But you know, it's also a legitimate question, as it would be on 9-11. It doesn't obscure the 9-11 hijackers if a plane was shot out of the sky. Clearly, you know, it was a direct result of that, but it's still a legitimate question about things that we, you know, that were done in our name, or in this case in the Israeli name, authority and policy. And what it means now, I think, for how does it translate to the existing hostages? We already know that, what is it, three of the hostages were shot and killed by IDF soldiers even when they were waving white flags around. We know that some have been reported dead. Now, Hamas claims that it's because of an airstrike. We do know that the uh, hostages who were freed and who eventually met with Netanyahu said, you have no idea what you're doing. We heard the airstrikes above us all the time. These are genuine questions. I mean, so then the question is, is that directive still in place today? There's a current report that, ya, how, is it Yahwa or Yaha? Whatever, Sinwar, the leader of Hamas, mm -hmm. is currently surrounding himself with all of the existing Israeli hostages. Not outside the realm of possibility. ISIS leaders did it all the time throughout Syria. America decided we will never hit somebody if they're gonna be surrounded by civilian casualties. And by and large, we were pretty good about it. We, in some cases, waited almost two years just to hit someone for the one time that they slipped up. Well, what if the Israelis are getting impatient? Are they gonna make that airstrike or not? And then just blame Hamas? That's a genuine question. Yeah. I mean, you know, and it's one of those where That's it could right. be genuinely downstream of this right here. And considering that all of global politics is surrounding like this with the sun, I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility. And this is the, the terror yeah. that hostage families yeah. are expressing exactly. Exactly. And let me also say the other reason why it matters to parse these details of what happened on October 7th, even though it's frankly, it's uncomfortable because you don't want to sound like no, you're exactly. minimizing right. it. And I, re I really am not, right? It really was horrific. There were genuine atrocities. But we have seen the way that Israeli politicians and military officials have used fake stories to justify the level of horror that has been inflicted on Gaza. 40 beheaded babies. Mm -hmm. Not true. That's true. Not true, yeah. right? And that's not me, that's Haaretz did an investigation. Many of the most gruesome and grisly stories, the, the baby in the oven, right? A uh, pregnant woman having a baby cut out of her, these things were not true. Now, there were plenty of other horrors that were true, but these fake stories were weaponized to justify the treatment of all Palestinians like they were animals, starving them, bombing them, now 12,000 kids dead, you know, 90% civilian casualties. These fake stories were weaponized. And so that's why it matters to get these details really correct. What was the number of civilian casualties that were actually inflicted by Hamas? 
What was that number? It, it matters, it, just in the interest of accuracy and understanding, truly understanding the events of that day. So that's why I thought it was worthwhile to spend some time on this story and the uproar that it's caused in Israeli society because we were, they were caught many times um, lying about what actually unfolded in that day in a way that has allowed them to, you know, make a more, a stronger case, not that any atrocity on that day would justify what they've done in Gaza, but that's the way that these stories and the events of these yeah. that day have been covered up and weaponized to uh, incredibly horrific effect. Played out in my own life, not even three weeks ago, I was having dinner with some of my friends. All of them are very, very pro-Israel. I don't bring it up. I, I, in general, I don't bring up anything. Uh, but <laughs> it's one of those where, you know, you're sitting, people are talking and all of that, and they're like, Sagar, you know, we've been listening to some of the, what you guys have been saying, and it's like, how come you have so much concern for Palestinians? And I was like, well, you know, first of all, you know, I just look at it genuinely impartially, like I have equal compassion for both. And they're like, yeah, but what about the beheaded babies? And I was like, look, I don't want to get into a discussion here at this Mexican suburban restaurant, but the Israeli media and themselves are the ones who disrupt it. They had no idea. Yeah. They had no clue. That's you know, these right. are there's your casual news consumers and I'm not putting them down. It's they're living their lives. You know, they're they're going about doing something. They're like, well what about the baby in the oven? And I was they're like, how can you, you know, how can you, you know, move past something like that? And I was like, look, again, I don't want to ruin your empanadas, but that's not true. And I was like, I can pull it up here, you know, on my phone. And I was like, and then when we take the emotion out of it a little bit, you know, we start to have even a little bit more of a conversation. And somebody's like, so what is the plan exactly? And he's like, so where are all these Palestinians? He's like, where did they go? And I was like, yeah, it's a good question, isn't it? And I was like, you should look into it. And it's one of those where that's how you have the conversation, but it just, it showed me in real time. I'm like, wow, this stuff is goes deep, you know, in terms of people who are casual news consumers, people who are picking these things up, and then how they can, and I, I, you know, to a certain extent, you can understand where like, well, anybody responsible for something like that has gotta invite a, some, a similar type of response. Yeah. But then when you take that out of it, you start, like you said, I don't think they genuinely had thought in that moment, where did all these Palestinian people have to go? And that's what happens whenever you, you know, casually consume some of these things. And again, I don't, I'm not putting these people down, these are people, good friends of mine. The point is just that, a lot of people live, live like this, you know, genuinely about in their daily lives. And what we try to do here on the show is just present to you a very, very, a very degrace, you know, it's black and white is, is easy. The gray zone and all this other stuff, that's where most of real life takes place. Yeah. And when you can talk in that, as I did with my friends, you can do it in a non-confrontational way and you can actually arrive at a very different place. And I think that's what we're trying to do here right now. And that's part of the reason why we're doing this story. So yeah. let me go ahead and touch the third rail here. Yeah. Um, the other thing that has been in dispute is whether there was widespread systematic rape on October 7th. Sure. And yeah. maybe there was. I'm not saying there wasn't. I'm certainly not saying there was no sexual violence on that day. I actually right. think it would be relatively preposterous to imagine there was no sexual violence right. on that day. However, the claim of mass systematized sexual assault has not been backed up by evidence. Mm -hmm. And at this point, based on all of the lies they've been caught in at this point, I think it is entirely appropriate to say there needs to be some sufficient level of evidence to justify these claims. Um, Ryan and Emily actually reported on, there was a, a New York Times article that, that sought to dig in yeah. to this, um, this you know, question of sexual violence on October 7th. And um, one of the primary, you know, witnesses, families that they focused on after this report came out said, 
we did not think that our daughter was raped. Mm -hmm. We did not know that this was the intention of your article. Um, And just imagine if that was your daughter who was killed on that day and you have a reporter who comes to you basically under false pretenses to sort of use you to try to make a point. Now, again, I am not saying that nothing happened. I I I don't know. But the evidence that has so far been proffered is insufficient to justify the claim of mass systematized rape on that day. And again, you might say, well, why why does this matter? Like, it was horrible. Isn't that enough for you? Like, why are you nitpicking here? Mm -hmm. And I would just go back to the fact that the um, horrible stories that were many in, in often in many cases fabricated in order to elicit emotional response were used to justify horrors being inflicted on Palestinians. And so, you know, that and just accuracy does matter. Like actually knowing for the historical record what really unfolded as best as we possibly can on that day does matter. Truth matters a lot. Like you said, it would be actually absurd to have the idea that a bunch of guys, you know, thousands of guys who flooded into a country, you know, did and with weapons and crazed bloodlust did not commit sexual violence. It also would be absurd to just take any, you know, account which has frequently been caught, you know, either being fabricated or exaggerated and just believe it in whole truth. Facts matter, of course, for the historical record. And we've also seen throughout history how exaggerations and fakeries are often used to justify the worst of a response, such that in this moment of intense information overflow and all that, I actually think it matters the most today yeah. than it ever did in the past because there is so much out there to quote unquote support whatever you want. I think you could fully convince yourself that the beheaded baby story and the oven story are 100% true if you just Googled it online. If you read the three stories that were to back it up, it takes a lot of time and effort. And that's part of the why the news is exhausting for so many people. And also because they don't want to talk about it over dinner. I get it. I 100% do. But, you know, if you're going to engage in it, if you're going to think about it. More importantly, as an informed citizen, I would urge you to try and do a lot of what we're trying to do. Yeah. yeah. Uh, last thing I'll mention on this is, as you mentioned, the mm. um, you know the uh, teenage girls that are still being held yeah. by Hamas, yeah. um, and they were highlighted, you know, extensively in the media yesterday. And I understand why. Left out of the account is that um, at least some of them are in the IDF, so they're not civilians, which changes the nature of the story and the way you feel about it. So in any case, it's important to have all of these details out there and to, as best we can, try to accurately sort through what the evidence suggests actually happened on that day. And that's something that the Israeli society right now is grappling with themselves. Um, At the same time, there is another uproar in uh, Israel over a Knesset member who is signing on to the South Africa uh, claim at the ICJ that Israel is in the process of committing a genocide. Put this up on the screen. So uh, the headline here is Israeli MK causes uproar in Knesset after signing petition accusing Israel of genocide in Gaza after Ofer Kassif, MK in the Arab Jewish Hadash Tal party, signed the South Africa petition. Fellow Knesset members called for his removal. Kassif explained his reasoning, saying, my constitutional duty is to Israeli society, not to the government who calls for ethnic cleansing and even actual genocide. He's, his signature... 
um, is added to those of over 200 citizens of Israel who have also signed on to that petition. I'm reading from this report right now. Expected to be presented to the court toward the beginning of the hearings, which start on Thursday. The petition reads in part, the information that emerges from the lawsuit is both horrific and credible. Israel is indeed taking systematic and thorough steps to wipe out the population of Gaza, to starve, abuse, and displace it. It has implemented a policy of erasing options for livelihood, which is leading to genocide. So uh, I have an update here, which is that there's a process by which if you can collect 70 signatures from uh, cabinet members uh, from across the Knesset, then you can begin a process that could lead to his removal. And they have now obtained those 70 signatures. So the process is moving forward to attempt to remove him from the Knesset. He explained his reasoning in a post on Twitter. Put this up on the screen. This is translation is per Google Translate. So forgive any uh, inaccuracies here. But according to Google Translate, what he said is, my constitutional duty is to Israeli society and all of its residents, not to a government whose members in its coalition are calling for ethnic cleansing and even actual genocide. They are the ones who hurt the country and the people. They are the ones who led South Africa to turn to the Hague, not me and my friends. And when the government acts against society, the state, and its citizens, especially when it sacrifices them and commits crimes in their name on the altar of maintaining its existence, it is my right and even my duty to warn about this and do everything I can within the law to stop it. I will not give up the fight for our existence as a moral society. This is the true patriotism, no revenge wars and calls for extermination, no unnecessary bloodshed, and no sacrifice of kidnapped citizens and soldiers in false wars. Um, this is not the first time uh, that this man has, by the way, been uh, temporarily suspended and removed from the Knesset over his activism. And I wanted to play for you a piece of an interview that he gave uh, a while back. This was, uh, I think, roughly two years ago, just to give you a sense of his sort of like passion and his committed advocacy. Take a listen. I'm a member of the Knesset, but the police is not interested in that. They don't care about my immunity. They don't care about my rights. They just care about protecting the criminal settlers who invade here. And you see, they keep shooting now. They keep shooting here, although the demonstrators are peaceful. They didn't do anything. We didn't do anything. This is the police. This is the police of this fascist government that protects the criminal settlers against the Palestinian indigenous. So we see the level of uh, pushback that occurs when you uh, dissent here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. on Israel-Palestine when you stand up for Palestinian rights and um, dignity. And here he is in Israel where people are getting arrested for social media posts and, you know, society is in fever pitch uh, at the moment. And I think it's incredibly courageous to do this, to sign on to this petition, to speak out really at all um, at this moment. Yeah, I'm really interested to actually see uh, how it goes in terms of Israeli society. And actually, you know, I watched your whole video on the breakdown, how it's going to continue in the ICJ process. Because yeah. that actually, I didn't realize that some of the ramifications of what it means because they're a signatory to it and also for what the uh, geopolitical situation in the future, we've already seen it right now with Putin in terms of his inability to travel in some cases. So, you know, something like that applied to Israel would be extraordinary in terms of their overall situation. So, yeah, I'm, it's going to be very very interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah, um, I watched an analysis, and we maybe play this on Thursday because that's when the public hearings start. Um, but Norm Finkelstein was talking about how he thought this may break down. And, you know, unfortunately, like you would hope that these things were unbiased and mm -hmm. it's just going to look at yeah. the merits, et cetera. It's very political, which is why 
Israel's pushback is less on the merits and more, according to what's been reported, pressuring diplomats to get various countries to put out statements right. and, um, you know, play like a political game to try to pressure the judges that will be um, hearing this case at the ICJ. There are 15 judges and Norm was going through, you know, each one of them. He thought it was unlikely that South Africa would prevail because even countries like China and Russia, you might think would side with them, but there's a real question mark because then does that open, does Russia fear that that opens Pandora's box and invites scrutiny on them? Does China fear that it opens Pandora's box and invites scrutiny on them for their treatment of the um, uh, Uyghur Muslim uh, minority? So, you know, even countries like that that you might think would be on South Africa's side, there's a real question mark. So in any case, um, you know, it's going to be, I think it's important that South Africa did it. I think the case they filed is incredibly, you know, detailed. The legal standard that has to be met right now is not like a final finding of genocide. It's just that it is plausible that that's what's being committed right now. And I think, you know, in my opinion, if you look at the civilian death, if you look at the levels of starvation, if you look at the vast number of comments, they have six pages of comments from various Israeli officials um, talking about, you know, Palestinians as human animals and saying they want to destroy all of Gaza and Nakba 2023, et cetera. I think it is certainly plausible um, that that's exactly what's happening, but we'll see how this all unfolds. Um, and whether uh, the activism here from this member of Knesset means anything. The last thing I wanted to close with in this section is there was, just to show you that, you know, this conversation is uh, important even within Israeli society, there was a Haaretz op-ed, we can put this up on the screen, who, uh, that is basically saying, like, you know, that South Africa really has a point. Good luck to the ICJ. Israelis should hope it will decree to stop the Gaza operation. Israel did not go to war in order to commit genocide, this person's opinion. There is no doubt about that, but it is committing it in practice, even without intending to. Every day that goes by in this war with its hundreds of deaths reinforces the suspicion. So even an Israeli newspaper here um, with an op-ed calling for uh, the ICJ to side with South Africa and find that it is plausible that Israel is in fact committing genocide. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see how it plays out. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. 
So yesterday, President Joe Biden went down to Charleston, South Carolina to give a political speech at the Mother Emanuel AME Church. That is where, of course, Dylan Roof um, massacred so many people in a horrific incident. While Biden was speaking, he was interrupted by uh, protesters demanding a ceasefire in Gaza. Let's take a listen. Without the truth, there's no light. Without light, there's no path from this darkness. That's all right. 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 I understand their passion, and I've been quietly working. I've been quietly working with the Israeli government to get them to reduce and significantly get out of Gaza. I'm using all that I can to do. So that is the way that unfolded. Um, you know, from my perspective, when you have protesters who are demanding an end to the mass murder of children and other innocents, and the response is four more years, it is a very dark, very dark situation. I mean, listen, I would love soccer for Joe Biden in particular, but for all politicians who are enabling this, to have to face these types of protests and face the horrors of what they're enabling, I would love for them to have to deal with that every single day. And, you know, the Biden campaign and the Biden administration, their theory of the case of why, oh, young people, like, they'll get over it, Arab Americans, Muslim Americans, they'll get over it. When they remember that it's Donald Trump on the ballot, they'll show back up, they'll come back around. And they think that this will be in the, quote, rearview mirror. And I think actions like this, which have persisted for months at this point, are a very clear demonstration that, no, they're not getting over it. Um, and there is no going back to a time before this was all enabled by Joe Biden. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in, I was interested to play this. And actually, maybe if you don't mind, could you yeah. set up the next element? Because I think this is going to be an instructive conversation about protest, about its place in American life, usefulness, uh, you know, counterproductivity, and all of that. Yes. So there were also yesterday mass protests in New York City. We can go ahead and put this up on the screen where pro-ceasefire protesters shut down three different bridges. You can see this is the Brooklyn Bridge. They also shut down the Holland Tunnel. Um, that's what you're looking at here. And uh, here we have Manhattan Bridge. And I think we had one more bridge. And this is an individual who is upset because he is uh, being delayed. I would probably be upset too. And he's yelling at the protesters, getting out of his car, shoving them, uh, becoming irate. So this was uh, the scene that unfolded in New York yesterday. And here you have police who are uh, sawing through, I believe, the chains that they had, uh, like, chained themselves together. And a number of people were arrested in these protests, which shut down traffic for, I believe, roughly, like, hour and a half, two mm -hmm. hours yesterday in New York City. Yeah, so the reason I think this is a good juxtaposition for me personally, and I know you disagree, is that I have zero issues with the protests of the president of the United States. But these protests drive me absolutely crazy. And not only are they counterproductive, but I went back and I did a lot of reading. And the, my favorite book on this subject about the new left and the rise of this type of of protests and belief 
was, uh, it's called Days of Rage. Mm -hmm. And what it is is that if you actually see the way that the rhetoric that was these organized things where they call them actions. Uh, action is a traditional word in new left activism and it goes back to the days of the Weather Underground, of the Symbionese Liberation Army, and many of these other crackpot groups from back in that time. And those people had a fundamental belief that if you set off, you know, a thousand bombs or whatever, what the Weather Underground and these types of groups did, if you kidnap Patty Hearst, if you, you know, create awareness, quote unquote, and you basically make life miserable and annoying for people, that they will rise up the great proletariat against the establishment. And instead, actually, it was completely counterproductive. The vast majority of people hated these groups. They increased supported law enforcement, and they turned against the very causes which the protest movements of the 1960s on civil rights and on Vietnam mm -hmm. were extraordinarily successful. So what I would say to these Palestinian groups is that blocking working class people from traffic or a man from his daughter or preventing people from picking or dropping off from school or from going to work is not only counterproductive, but is fundamentally stupid, and it misses the point of fun who is actually in power for quote-unquote awareness. So for example, remember Remember the debate about the lady who followed Kirsten Cinema into the bathroom and yelled at her, and everyone's like, oh, "This is an outrageous!" Yeah. And I was like, hey, "Sorry, you know, eat shit. You know, you are a politician." It is what it is. I'm not saying it's pleasant. You can resign. Go for it. I don't care. But at the end of the day, I believe in maximalist protest against people who are in power. But blocking normal folks from traffic, just as many of these climate folks have done, also the people who throw, you know, what is it, blood or whatever on these Van Gogh paintings and all that, this is just classic new left activism. And folks, you're going to lose, just like the Black Panthers did, just like the Weather Underground, just like these other. So if you believe in making an impact, this is just the wrong, wrong thing to do. And I think you should be arrested. I don't think you should be doing or allowed to be doing such like this. It just doesn't work. And it just, it misses the point about the center of gravity for Israel is not in the American populace. The American populace supports a ceasefire. It is in Joe Biden, the United States Senate, and the DC establishment. So go outside the White House and protest all day long. And in fact, you know, go back and read the hey, hey, LBJ chants. They drove him nuts. And they arguably did have an impact on Vietnam policy. But blocking a Brooklyn man from going to see his daughter, I don't know, man. That's that just so so wrong to me. So yeah. I disagree yeah. on basically yeah. every level. Go ahead. Yeah. So they've been protesting outside the White House every day. Do you know what impact it's had? Nothing. Well, absolutely I mean, took five years, nothing. but it still happened. So to yeah. conflate this completely nonviolent protest What's with the happened? weather underground, 100% yeah. nonviolent protest here, blocking traffic, blocking bridges, blocking tunnels. To conflate that with the weather underground, these are that is just wildly wrong and inappropriate. I'm talking about the theory. So let me okay, yeah, but yeah. let me let me talk about the theory yeah. here. So first of all, number one, do I think that the cause of attempting to stop babies from being bombed and an entire population from being starved is important, vital, and urgent enough to inconvenience people to mm -hmm. justify inconveniencing people? That's mm -hmm. the first test. That's the one thing you the first thing you object to. Mm -hmm. Yes, I do. I think it justifies inconveniencing people because of the vast scale, unprecedented nature of the horrors that are being inflicted. That's number one. Number two, the question, is it effective? Listen, we can't really know in real time, but um, protests like mass protests like this come out of the media era where the goal isn't, you know, to persuade that gentleman in the car who's very irate or even, you know, the people immediately there in New York. The goal is to get media attention to draw eyeballs to your cause. Did they accomplish that? 
Yes, 100%. Mm-hmm. Have we covered any of the protests outside the, the White House? No. No, that's not true. Are, yes, we, co- we, are we covering now yeah. the, you know, the, the protests that interrupted Joe Biden and these protests, which I think were very creative, in fact, which disrupted life in New York City? Yes. So does it pass the test of it garners eyeballs? Yes. Second piece of, you know, what makes a protest effective Does it win people over to your cause? And I'm not talking about overall majority opinion, although that can happen too. And usually when that happens is when there is a disproportionate response from police and other authorities that garners sympathy for the activists. Um, You know, they were arrested. I wouldn't call the like response to be disproportionate or the sort of thing that would garner that sort of sympathy. But did it draw the sort of attention that could win more activists to their cause? Yes. Third question. To your point, Mm -hmm. already a majority of the American public agrees with overwhelmingly wants a ceasefire. The one person who is determinative on this is Joe Biden. It's all about Joe Biden, right? And what is Joe Biden telling himself right now? Because the only, obviously he doesn't care about babies being killed in Gaza, it's pretty clear. Obviously he doesn't care about, you know, the humanitarian situation. Apparently he doesn't care about the possibility of the U.S. getting drawn into war, at least not enough to actually do something about it. What he might care about is his political prospects. They're telling themselves that this is going to be in the rearview mirror. And these protests, day after day, these mass actions day after day, are a clear message aimed directly at Joe Biden. No, it won't be. We are not going away. These disruptions are not going away. Life is not going to be normal again for you, certainly, until you stop the bombing in Gaza. So on those metrics of success, just as a tactic, I think it passes. And then the last thing, which is perhaps the most important to me, is, you know, if I look back at like nonviolent protesters against past horrors, you know, slavery, right? The abolitionists, um, those who protested against like the Holocaust, Mm -hmm. those who were protesting Jim Crow, again, nonviolently, I could not possibly, even if I thought the tactic was like a little foolish or not going to work or whatever, which again, I don't think that's the case here. But even if I did, could I find it in my heart to criticize the people who are on the right side of history, who are trying to do everything they can to try to force some sort of an end to the horrors that are being inflicted here? No, there's no way I could find it in my heart to do that. So I totally understand where you're coming from, but the reason why I've compared it to that is about the theory of the case, which is about making life more miserable in a democracy. And I, I, you know what? I can hear the emotion in your voice, and I just think it's a fundamental disagreement. I mean, at the end of the day, the people who are dying here are not American citizens. Even in the case of Vietnam, like this was about American soldiers. But what I would disagree with is that you were saying, you know, we did cover a protest at the White House. We sent our own uh, Mac over there in order to do the filming, but it took five, 10 years, you know, of protests against Vietnam. That's simply, you know, you don't get to have immediate gratification. In five or 10 years, there won't be a single Palestinian left in Gaza. I mean, that's the thing. It's so immediate. And our people are not dying yet. Actually, our soldiers came very close to being killed uh, thanks to the, uh, this conflict and Iraqi militias, you know, firing on them while they're sleeping in barracks. So the risk is incredibly real. These are our tax dollars that are paying for these 2,000 pound bunker buster bombs that are being dropped on civilians in Gaza. So to be like, oh, this doesn't really concern, of course it does. And clearly these protesters feel that incredibly, incredibly deeply. And that's why they're doing whatever they can think of to do to try to disrupt this, try to put pressure on Joe Biden. Because listen, it honestly, it's not, unfortunately, it's not about winning people over in a democracy. Because if that was the case, it'd be over already. Yes, that's true. It would be over already. 
This is not a democratic action. This is about pressuring Joe Biden and persuading him that this is not going away. This is not going to be in the rearview mirror. And so, yes, I do think that attention-grabbing actions like this could move the needle. Maybe. I mean, listen, let's, there's let's no guarantees, reverse, but could move the needle here. Let's reverse and look back. What was the result of 1968, of the mass protest movement? What ended up happening? A landslide election for Richard Nixon, who wanted to crack down on protests. The silent majority, who despised and were angry at the hippies who had taken over the cities and were doing there many are no the same things pro-Palestinian politicians but on the ballot. My point, so my it's point not like there's a better option that out the there. The vast majority of people, as we also saw post BLM, turned against the BLM movement. You know, there you could use the same justification for much of the looting and other things that accompanied no, but they, those the BLM were, riots. You cannot compare nonviolent yeah. protests. But with even protests the that in ones. some instance turned yeah. violent. Yes, like, no, that is not a fair comparison. Let, to but let's look about the BLM riot. Okay, let's look at the BLM nonviolent marches themselves and about eventually what occurred, which was a mass social chilling against anybody, including people like me, who spoke out against what we thought was an, you know, a ridiculous cause at the time. What ended up happening is that huge amounts of people felt as if they could not speak out then at the time and ended up supporting more pro-police policies. The net effect of BLM has had no impact on the overall cause. I don't see that the analogy wanted. here because the people who feel they can't speak out right now are the people who are trying to defend Palestinians. Well, so you it's can completely block traffic. It's and completely reversed. And again, yeah. I think yeah. what people responded to because the original peaceful marches, I mean, you remember, it was overwhelmingly popular. You had huge constituencies, millions of people out in the streets, et cetera, et cetera. I think what caused the backlash is the looting, is mm -hmm. the violence that broke out in, in plenty of locations. There's no analogy here. There is no looting. There is no violence. This is a completely like textbook, nonviolent civil uh, action that is occurring here. And like I said, even if I thought it was like foolish, which again, I don't, mm. there is no way that I could look at what's unfolding in Gaza and be like, where there are such clear villains and be like, oh, these people who are on the right side of history, they're the ones that I'm going to complain about. They're the ones that I'm going to criticize. I just don't think much of this right side of history stuff ends up standing up. Because the truth is, is I mean, everybody thinks Sager. that whenever they're involved. I'm it's not a genocide. No, well, Sager, first of all, it I is a, it is a genocide. Well, At the I very least, say, it is a mass killing of civilians. If there is a right side of history that has ever been clear, which, yes, you're right. In mm. many instances, it's a judgment call. I think it's pretty compelling which is the right side of history here, just based on the numbers of civilians who are being massacred and starved at the moment. So I think that the mass killing, slaughter, and all that, I, uh, here's the thing. I, I not only have condemned it, I've talked about it with you now for two months straight. I'm talking about we live in a democracy, you know, actually, not even inconveniencing. Who knows? What if you stopped an ambulance, as we saw during Bridgegate? I mean, We'd know about it uh, by now. Uh, maybe, maybe, but they personally could have done it, and they were willing to take that risk. That's fine. You're allowed to do that as an American citizen. I think that as long as it's nonviolent, absolutely. And I don't think you should be treated badly. In order that We're talking about what is the overall net democratic effect? Mm -hmm. And I, don't th I think it's incredibly counterproductive. And then generally, it goes back to that disagreement that we have here about new left tactics where, yes, it bled into violence in the case of the Weather Underground. But fundamentally what it came from was a was that they believed they could no longer work within the corridors of power in order to pressure them. And they were wrong. I believe that they were absolutely wrong. And because of that, they ended up seeding, actually, infusing much of the new left with the Democratic politicians, which allowed the overall Nixonian takeover. So what I would say to many of these people who are doing this is that turning the regular populace against you 
makes it so that the more politically popular choice for Eric Adams and for Joe Biden would be to crack down on these protesters. It would be to send the police in, beat the shit out of them. And guess what would happen then? Guess what would happen then? I actually don't know. Public opinion would turn in favor of the protesters. I don't think so. You look at the civil rights movement. What caused the public to really turn and be on their side? It's when they unleashed dogs on the protesters because they felt the same way. They're like, these people are annoying. They're taking over our cities. This rabble needs to go. If you have a protest that is inconveniencing no one, you know what it's going to do? Absolutely freaking nothing. But you should inconvenience the right people, which are the people in power. You should go outside the White House and you should scream, which is what they should. Listen, that's what they did in Vietnam. And you can say that it didn't have an effect. I think it had a tremendous effect. The occupation of that ground about that White House. I think that those protests that were eventually, for example, at that time, college sit-ins did nothing. Screaming outside of the White House had a massive impact on overall U.S. policy. Or, for example, when President Nixon showed up at the Lincoln Memorial in order to talk with the protesters there and to figure out... He's like, what, why can I cannot connect with those folks? That was occupation of a federal monument and a specific you know, protest against a policy. But the overall American populace dramatically rejected this, as we can see from the historical record. And I would disagree because at the time, what shocked the Northern conscious is that they were already on the side of the civil rights protesters. Here, they had not seen the validation of right. that cause. Well, but Israel is the, a 50-50 that's, split. That's, it is not in not terms of a ceasefire. Not right. in terms of a ceasefire. But again, the idea that having a majority of people support a ceasefire is going to change anything is clearly not true. Like, that's clearly not true. So, in my opinion, the most effective thing is to try to create uh, pressure that convinces Joe Biden that this is not going away. That's your best hope because it really comes down to this one senile old man who is deluding himself into, you know, what justifying atrocities and is turned out to be a complete monster. That's your whole goal. And so, listen, are there guarantees that this action or any other action is going to influence this one senile old man? No. But anything that you're doing that is aimed at persuading him and his political coterie that this is not going away and that people feel really strongly about this, so strongly they're willing to shut down bridges in Manhattan and piss off a bunch of motorists. Yeah, but that's costless to them. The cost is paid by the motorists. I mean, and that's kind of my point. And we just view this differently because given the 10 kids every day are losing their legs in Gaza, right? Half of the population is starving to death. 90% 90% doesn't have a meal a day. It has already been rendered uninhabitable. The level of destruction is beyond Dresden and some of the other you know, horrors of the past. Like That's where we are. So when I put that up against inconveniencing motors, motorists for a couple hours during rush hour, I'm sorry, but I think it justifies but can't that you inconvenience. See how you, you could say that for anything. I mean, you could make that for literally for any cause that you sufficiently believe in. And so I'm, I'm not putting down. You can you could believe whatever you want. But I mean, the really- Sagar, that's yeah. real moral relativism. But it is moral relativism. No, Everybody it's not. Believe, January 6th, people believe that they were saving democracy. That doesn't justify what they were doing. That's my what point. What they believe you and just, the you know, facts and the reality and what's not of is a judgment call. civilian death is, I mean, these are two very different things. So yes, in a sense, everything is subjective. But in another sense, like it's very clear what's unfolding here. And when you just stack up the number of innocent lives that are lost, 
you know, to put that against inconveniencing people. Yes, I think it's, yes, I think it's justified. And like I said, I, there is no way that I can criticize these people who I admire, who I wish I was more like them to have the courage to go out and do these sorts of things and try to affect change try to, you know, rescue the lives of people that they don't even know in the Gaza Strip. But that's kind of my point is that I actually think you're doing far more of a service to the cause sitting here and we're talking, you know, having an intelligent conversation and we're talking about the news and you you probably changed 10 times more minds than any of those people have. So I, I disagree with that actually completely. And I, I just think that is that justification is one that anybody could use for anything. Yeah, but you sometimes it will be right and sometimes it would not but be. But who decides that? Nobody decides that. I mean, look, I could give the exact counter case, which is that these people, you know, the Israeli case on this is these people support Hamas. These are, we're making sure that lie. the safety of our- And what I said well, is no, not a lie. I mean, what they helped is they helped elect them. At the very least, they lived under their rule. I don't believe this, to be clear. I'm giving what they could say. So obviously we need to make sure that we have a safe zone around our territory. We have the military capability to do so. They don't. History belongs to the victors. So be it. So mor- you guys so you're did just the a same total thing. moral relativism. There no. is no right and wrong. You can't say a genocide is I wrong. Think, Ethnic cleansing is wrong. These are things that are worth inconveniencing people I think people Israeli to action over. is wrong. I'm saying, though, that you can make this case in any form. And that such then, that's why baseline rules overall matter. And that you should make sure that you're trying to— Look, I just simply don't believe in doing things that aren't going to do anything. So, for example, that's why I think this is deeply counterproductive, blocking people in traffic. Same with the climate change thing. Do I think uh, anthropogenic climate change is real? Yes. Do I think that, you know, defacing Van Gogh paintings and all that is going to do anything about it? No. And that's why I believe in nuclear power. And that's why I talk about it I don't it think that's productive either. This is different. Yeah. This is but a different not. action. And, and yeah. it's much more targeted and it's much more immediate. There is a very clear demand. There's a very clear individual who needs to be influenced. And so I just... I just basically disagree on every level. Mm. I disagree that it's not effective. I disagree that it is wrong, in morally wrong in any sort of sense. These people are morally righteous to me. There has never been anything more clear. And number three, I just like, there are villains right now, very clear villains. One of them is like, you know, a mile away from here in the White House. And to spend any time criticizing the people who are trying to avert atrocities I think that's fair, Crystal, but if you were, let's, what if they crossed into the realm of violence, then what? Well, then that's yeah. a different story, but well, we're but not talking about this. This is nonviolent. But then we do have to draw This lines. is nonviolent. There are, you know, realms within people operating. All right, so then we get to within nonviolence, pro- yeah. nonviolent yeah. protests, will I criticize nonviolent protesters who are saying no to genocide now or any other time in the past? No, I, I will not criticize them. I just think that when we talk about effectiveness and about power and about what actually matters and what moves the needle, I don't see this as moving that at all. I think the Biden one actually might. And in fact, if this, that continues, that's something that he's gonna have to deal you with. You have to try lots of things. And again, contentious politics, like they are contentious for a reason. If they're not upsetting anyone or irritating anyone or causing any friction, they go completely unnoticed and they're mm. completely pointless. You may be right, but then we can't complain then whenever causes that we don't support subject themselves to the same level of tactics. And that's more where, you know, I see not only media Like treatment. the anti-vax people who yeah. took over the city yeah, in exactly. Canada. Right, I mean, it didn't really work though, unfortunately for them. You know, I mean, they got cleared out by the police. The Canadian populace largely turned against them. They had a massive police state crackdown. From what I can tell, Trudeau got himself reelected. But so again, I just like don't, much. I just don't yeah. agree with this moral relativism of like, who can even say what's right or wrong? And at all costs, causes mm. could theoretically be just. It's like, okay, but there are some things that should be really clearly off the table that we should be very able to very clearly say this is right and this is wrong. And to me, again, this is the most clear-cut instance I've perhaps ever seen in my life. Okay. Well, we're going to agree or disagree. Let's move on to the next one.
Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. At the same time, we've got to turn over to domestic politics, what's happening here in America. It's primary season. we got a shocking new poll here. Let's put it up there on the screen. And what does it show? My God, Nikki Haley coming within single digits in a CNN poll, up 12 points since November. Trump standing at 39 points. Haley, 32. Chris Christie, 12. Vivek, 8. And DeSantis, so Nikki Haley certainly surging, at least that certainly seems to be the consensus, and not just in this poll, Crystal, but in a variety of other ones that we have seen. And it actually fits, I think, with Trump's overall strategy. He no longer has been talking as much about Ron DeSantis. He's been talking much more about her. He took that opportunity on the pulpit to go after her for her slavery comments <laughs> about the Civil War. Man, I wish I'd been here for that. Let's take a listen. You know, they asked her about the Civil War. Why did it start? How did it start? She didn't use the word slavery, which was interesting. I don't know that it's it's going to have an impact, but, you know, I'd say slavery is sort of the obvious answer. It's supposed to, it's supposed to about three paragraphs of bullshit. Paragraphs of bullshit. have to be so damn He's funny. He's so good. You, know, <laughs> you got to give it to him. Unfortunately. You, you have to hand it to him. Crystal, this, he gets to the crux of it. It's also funny because I, I haven't gotten to weigh in on this, and there's nothing I actually hate more than Lost Cause stuff. Mm. And so, for her, she, I believed, didn't know or she did not have a real position on this. She in her head was like, well, I can't say it's about slavery because these GOP voters are so racist that they're gonna get mad at me for saying it. Whereas Trump is like, if slavery instead of three paragraphs of bullshit, and he's overwhelmingly more popular yeah. than her. Well, it's also it's the like context- It's such a disdain to voters. It's also the yeah. context of him being a New Yorker. Yes. And her yeah, being a point. South Carolinian who's like imbibed right. all of this weird lost cause yeah, bullshit just, where it's like, ah, I can't, I can't say it's slavery right. when it, even the way she approached the question, remember mm-hmm. she was like, oh, this is a tough question. Yes, I watched like, it. She was like, well, it's, it's like, actually, it's not, not a tough question. It's um, like the most tough, it should be. Like you can say states' rights about slavery It should want, be the easiest question of, of all time. But yeah. yeah, Trump, unfortunately, using his uh, superpower of humor there to great effect. Trump is the true master of this, uh, of this art. Now, we have seen Nikki Haley in her last ad in Iowa. This seems to be the way that she wants to, cr- uh, she wants to draw a difference between her and Donald Donald Trump. Here she's talking about a president with grit and grace, a different style, and not a name from the past while flashing images of the two. Let's take a listen to that. A president 
with grit and grace. A different style, not a name from the past. Your family deserves a border secured, an economy restored, a nation respected. Our moment is now. Our mission is clear. Let's save our country and secure our future, and let's move forward together toward our destiny in a strong and proud America. Pretty cookie-cutter message there that you see, Crystal. Yeah. But the, you know, it's interesting that that's as far as she'll go whenever it comes to criticizing Trump. That's it. Just a name, not a name from the past, a name from the future. But I got to be honest, she's done extraordinarily more uh, better than I thought she would yeah. uh, in New Hampshire. It does, though, like I've always said, it kind of makes sense. She is the natural anti-Trump candidate, and she embodies everything from the past. So people who might have liked Dick Cheney and that type of politics, this is who you should vote for. Well, it's, after it's Ron kind of yeah. fell off and was like super awkward right. and not gaining traction or whatever, the donors all got behind Nikki. She had that first debate, which was very effective, um, which, you know, she actually garnered a bump in the polls from her debate performances, mm -hmm. continued to climb from there, at least in New Hampshire. I mean, my question for you, like, I guess her theory is, all right, I was whatever, I'm going to lose there. And she even said something weird, like, New Hampshire will correct yeah, that's right. what happens in Iowa, which yeah. was like a little bit too much the quiet part out loud. But anyway, um, her theory is then if she goes and has this upset win in New Hampshire, that's going to completely change the game. It's going to show that someone else can win, um, and then she'll just pick up a head of steam from there and be able to, to mm. roll on through. I mean, do you think that there's anything to that case? Because... I uh, I don't really think there is, but let I me make I don't either. Let me yeah. let me make the devil's advocate case, which is like you know Trump feels so invincible and his whole reputation is staked on being a winner. And if Nikki Birdbrain Haley comes out and beats him in New Hampshire, a state that historically he did well in in the past, that that would be a real blow to him. And then that would open people up. You probably have everybody else drop out of the race at that point. It would be head-to-head, -head, Nikki versus Trump. And maybe that will open people up to this idea that it's actually time to move on. If there's a case, that's it. I yeah. don't think it's practical, uh, but let's look to a little bit of history. I mean, it's complicated because you're comparing apples to oranges. But, you know, Bill Clinton crashes in Iowa, Come comes to New kid. Hampshire, the comeback kid. He gets the headline, goes through Super Tuesday, does pretty well, seals it all up, and he owes it all to New Hampshire. To this day, he says that's where I, you know, officially won the presidency. You could flip it, though, and you can look at the fact that Barack Obama won Iowa, then he lost New Hampshire, but because he won Iowa, he's able to win South Carolina. So I can give two examples, you know, where it did matter and yeah. where it didn't. I think for Trump, New Hampshire is uh, really the first primary ever won in the race, I still think he's probably going to win. There's also a big uh, question mark here. Are these polls even right, Crystal? How the hell do we know? You right. could see mass movement toward, like, what if the final tally? If I recall in 2016, the poll was slightly off, especially because the effects of a Trump win in Iowa have not been factored into this. So you have the inevitability argument about, oh, well, Trump just won Iowa, so we'll do something a little bit different here. There's a lot of contravening elements here where overall, I just don't think any of it matters because in South Carolina, her own home state, in traditional politics, she should drop out if she doesn't win. If you mm. can't win your own home state, you should never continue in the race. That's generally how it goes. So then we have Super Tuesday and Nevada, which you know come afterwards. Trump is you know crushing by a mile. And people forget, 
California is now part of Super Tuesday. Trump is up in California by 50 points. I mean, it's just not even a, a, a competition right now. So again, so yeah. I don't agree with this analysis, yeah. but I'm gonna play devil's advocate and try to take Nikki's, Nikki's side here. So what worked for Barack Obama, why he had such a surge after Iowa, is it effectively created a permission structure yes. for a lot of people who wanted to vote for him, but didn't know if he could really win, and black mm -hmm. voters in particular, and that's why he goes on to you know succeed in South Carolina and the rest is history. Um, maybe, there are some group of Republican voters who are kind of sick of Trump and kind of awesome. sick of the chaos yeah. and don't really want this dude with all these criminal indictments hanging over his head and all that, you know, he entails. Maybe they would like some sort of a break from him and to move to, you know, a, what does Nikki say? Like, not a name of the past. Yes. Maybe there's some group out there that feels like, ah, but everybody's with Trump and I just got to stick with Trump and we got to back up Trump because he's under attack from the liberals, et cetera, et cetera. And so maybe if you do see a state go for Nikki Haley, maybe there is some group that needs that permission structure to jump from the Trump train to the Nikki ship. If, listen, <laughs> anything is possible in America, all right? So the real question- He's gonna freak out if he loses New Hampshire. Yeah, the only thing I would say is there's such high expectations for Trump at this That's point true. He too. Could, if, he, if he wins Iowa but underperforms, that also is kind of a problem. You're not wrong. So let's say he wins New Hampshire by two points and then she can have a, you know, a theory of the case or whatever. So why she could win South Carolina, we could see it. Although I still don't think it's really gonna happen. Let's also give Ron DeSantis his due. This is his last ad in Iowa. Let's take a listen. Wall Street funded Nikki Haley just said in New Hampshire. You know Iowa starts it. You know that you correct it. Haley disparages the caucuses and insults you. It's Ron DeSantis who embodies and defends Iowa's values of faith, family, and freedom. He's tirelessly working to earn your support. Donald Trump is running for his issues. Nikki Haley's running for her donors' issues. I'm running for your issues. I'm Ron DeSantis, and I approve this message. Okay, I mean, it's probably the best that he can do. Things not looking necessarily the best for him right now. But it's sort of uh, pathetic that he's even taking aim at Nikki at this point, Well, right? I, I think it's just it's that she's bleeding into, I mean, here, can we please put C5 up on the screen, the maps, guys? Because this is his only chance right now. Where if you look at the two side by side, he clearly has done way more events in 57 counties. Yeah. But Crystal, if you look at the number of events and the counties where he did them, I went back and checked. These are all the places which Ted Cruz actually won in mm. 2016. So he is trying to recreate the Ted Cruz victory of 2016 in the Iowa caucuses. What I would just say is that's a footnote to history for a reason is, guess what? It didn't matter. The only thing that ended up happening is Ted won Iowa and he won Texas. So yeah. it didn't exactly work out so well for him in the overall overall. The thing is for DeSantis is this is a last ditch effort. He's hoping and praying for more of a surprise in the caucuses. But overall, if we can put the next one up, guys, the, the other maps, what's really sad about this is the overall decline of retail politics. Because Nikki Haley, she's done 51 events in 30 counties. I mean, look at Vivek. He's done 239 events in 94 counties. 35 years ago, that actually mattered. And yet, if you look at the polls of where he is in Iowa, it's like four, maybe 5%. The sad truth is, is that this whole visiting all 99 counties of Iowa and spending time on the ground, like season six or whatever of the West Wing, mm -hmm. that stuff just, it doesn't matter anymore. You know, yeah. it's all national. It all comes down to television and the internet and what people are consuming and the issue set in terms of them attending an event. Yeah, sometimes it can be a relative predictor, but on the margins, doesn't really matter anymore. No, it doesn't. Yeah. The retail politics, the like traditional campaign yeah. events are basically like a Potemkin village 
for the reality, you know, to cover yes. the reality that your campaign is just all about media. Yeah, and if you misunderstand that, you just misunderstand the nature of modern politics. Uh, the one thing, I, I, the Iowa caucuses are unique in that because of the nature of having to go in at a certain time and this weird process and whatever, it does matter that you have um, effective organization mm -hmm. on the ground. And I genuinely don't know which campaign has good organization on the ground and which doesn't. I just don't know. I haven't, you know, I haven't seen much reporting yes. about it. I do know that the DeSantis campaign has been in complete disarray and they had this whole theory that they were going to run the campaign effectively through the super PAC. And then the super PAC was bad and lackluster and like not doing a good job and pissed off Ron DeSantis. And um, so that sort of, you know, they had CEOs leaving week after week after week and a total leadership crisis there. And then they're like, all right, we'll use this other super PAC. So the, the top level signs that this is a well-organized campaign aren't there, but hey, I don't know. Maybe on the ground in Iowa, they've done a good job, effective job organizing, and that's right. what they're betting on. on it's it's I just don't know. possible. I mean, just to return to New Hampshire and to underscore, you know, we've seen this too. Let's put this up there uh, from ARG in the more recently uh, Republican poll. We could put C4, please, up on the screen. I mean, what you see here is Donald Trump at 37%, Nikki Haley at 33%. Chris Christie, I mean, he's actually at 10%. Previously, it was at 13 He's really screwing Nikki at Ron this point. Yeah, he certainly is. Ron DeSantis <laughs> is at 5. Previously, Oof. it was at 6. Ugh. And then Vivek Ramaswamy at 4 and 5. So DeSantis, you know, competing with Vivek for the Jeb position of New Hampshire. <laughs> for the Biden position in New long. Hampshire. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, right. There, there you go. That's the case uh, for maybe why it might work out. But things looking pretty good right now, I think, for Donald Trump. The Nikki Haley uh, position and the victory that she would want to see is one where she would beat Trump uh, in that slight margin and it would lead to some sort of, you know, some sort of momentum about something in South Carolina, but there's just not a lot of evidence that bears any of it out. Yeah. I don't see it. We'll see how it happens. Yeah. You know, you never know, right? Crazier things have happened before. I will say, just to emphasize again, you know, it's difficult to say, okay, if this person drops out, then all their voters are going to go in one place. Yeah, nobody knows. But we know that the Chris Christie voters are not going to go to Donald right, Trump. Right, right. That one is, like, as clear as it probably gets. They're probably likely to go majority to Nikki Haley. And so it's funny that effectively Chris Christie, who was the most aggressive Trump critic in the race, may be giving him exactly the boost that he needs in New Hampshire in order to uh, prevail over Nikki. We'll see how it all plays yeah, out. The, and it, as you said, listen, we should take all these polls with a massive yeah, grain of salt anyway. I, I actually am excited to see because the last Iowa poll is going to come out soon. And we will see. We, it's always fun to compare that to the actual results. And you Usually it's not, I mean, it's close-ish, but it's it can be pretty far off. And that's just the nature of the beast, especially with the caucuses where it's like, if you don't get enough votes here, then you can do a second choice. It's such an insane system. And honestly, we should <laughs> it, uh, it do over bizarre. with it. But that's a whole other conversation. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. 
With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Let's move on to Boeing. Wanted to give an update here because it's very, very important news. Let's put this up there on the screen. What you can see here, this was reported by the Air Current, fantastic aviation-related news outlet. And they're reporting that United yesterday found loose bolts on plug doors during their 737 MAX 9 inspections. This news report is very important because what it demonstrated is that this form of the aircraft where you have a door plug over what was traditionally going to be a door, which was installed by a separate Boeing supplier, Spirit Mm. Aerosystems, appears to have problems across the fleet of the 737 MAX 9. This shows us that it's not necessarily a maintenance issue ascribed to Alaska Airlines. This is, you know, kind of both of the types of, uh, both the airlines which receive the delivery of the vehicles and Most importantly, Crystal, the aircraft in question were all delivered between September, November 2022 and September of 2023 and would not have had their heavy maintenance check that would occur after 4,000 to 6,000 hours of flights, aka two to three years. So this was after immediate delivery relatively recently. It was found in at least five United aircraft. The more troubling news, though, is that afterwards, what we saw is that Alaska Airlines announced late last night that they also had found loose bolts on door plugs in their 737 MAX 9s that they have within their fleet. This traces us back then to that question about Boeing and Spirit Aerosystems. And so this is actually something I did not know. Uh, Boeing outsources its fuselage uh, to Spirit Aerosystems. They Mm. build the actual fuselages. So Alaska and United are the ones who have the specific type of configuration with the door plug. It is installed by Spirit Aerosystems, but it is then delivered for Boeing. So this does not take the responsibility away from Boeing. In fact, this basically heightens it, and it's going to have huge questions around their guidance to the overall fleet that remains, and how the hell are you not catching this, guys? We got multiple of these loose bolts. The big question right now in the current Alaska Airline incident is whether those door plug bolts, Crystal, were even installed, whether they had fallen off, and that's part of the reason why you had the decompression or whether they had loosened and then fell off mid-flight, which is what led to the incident. But the loose bolt, yeah, is horrifying because I said this yesterday. If this happened at cruising altitude, there'd be a lot of dead people. In fact, the entire plane could burst apart. It's called catastrophic decompression or something like that. Uh, Just to show you, though, the economic impact of this, it's massive already for Boeing. Let's put this up there. Boeing stock, uh, you know, the Dow drop yesterday was almost entirely due to Boeing. They're stock down now by 9%. Uh, Spirit Aerosystems down actually even further. They're going to have huge questions for the NTSB. 
Should for we buy overall, the Zogger? Uh, should we What's buy the recommendation? I don't know, man. I, honestly, I'd probably buy Airbus stock. I don't actually don't even know if you can, but because I think it's a European company. But the overall point just gets to my monologue yesterday, and that's kind of why I wanted to do this is, guys, this is really bad. This is a flagship American company. Once again, failure of maintenance, or sorry, once again, failure of regulatory regime, failure here of Boeing. We have here a company that's bought some 60-some billion dollars worth of its own stock since 2014, and now we've delivered two, you know, at the very least, two aircraft which have problems. Now, yeah. we don't know 100% that this lies with Boeing, but it is very difficult not to look at this and say, manufacturing error happens sometimes, and to a certain extent. I mean, if you and I outsource an element of our business for our overall product, you and I are still, still responsible, responsible for quality right. control. No, mm-hmm. I mean, we have people who work on our graphics and all that, but what, like, what would I say? Like, oh, it's the graphic guy's fault? Never. You know, like, it's our responsibility. We put out a product, and this is a much less life and death situation that's <laughs> happening uh, over at Boeing. So True. I think it's pretty crazy, you know, to see some of this news. I also want to give credit to uh, David Sirota and his team over at Lever News. They have some relevant, they just broke a story mm-hmm. that's very relevant to um, their headline is Boeing Supplier that's uh, Spirit, what's it called? Spirit Aero? Spirit Aero Systems. Aero Systems. Ignored warnings of excessive amount of defects According to former employees, weeks before Alaska Airlines' terrifying debacle, one of the aircraft's manufacturers was accused of systematically ignoring safety problems. Um, And uh, what they say is that they were also asked, they allege, that this employee alleged they were asked by corporate officials to falsify records to cover up these defects. One of the employees at Spirit Aerosystems, which reportedly manufactured the door plug that blew out of an Alaska Airlines flight, allegedly told company officials about an excessive amount of defects This is according to a federal complaint and corresponding internal corporate documents that were reviewed by the lever. According to the court documents, the employee told a colleague that he believed it was just a matter of time until a major defect escaped to a customer. So is this relevant also to what unfolded here? Raises certainly a lot of questions. Oh, yeah, massive questions. It's like what's happening in terms of our oversight and just in general. Look, Spirit Aerosystems. And I went back yesterday and dug even deeper about, you know, Boeing Company, how they've moved their headquarters. They've had mergers in the past. People who work for the company have been whistleblowing now for 20 some odd years about the financialization of this company, the moving away from engineering and the promotion of these MBAs. It all goes back to everything I talked about yesterday about the takeover of financialization of stock price. The airplane is merely a function to boost the stock. The stock is not a reflection right now of the airplane. And what's really embarrassing is that This is a duopoly system. Our only other option is a European company called Airbus. I mean, this was and is a bedrock of American manufacturing, national defense base. It's critical to our national security. How And to a certain extent, I mean, the public basically owns this company already. We bailed them out how many times? 2008. Because of their stock buybacks. Because of their stock buybacks. And so we have no say over the way that they're conducting themselves, even though they take tens of billions of dollars in bailouts, not to mention all these military you know, contracts that we have with the company. So pretty devastating. Final thing that we can put up there on the screen here is from a leak by United Pilots themselves, where this is an internal email where they tell them not to leak the email, but <laughs> the pilots immediately did. And they're like, yeah, this new memo shows us that we are hoping to return this aircraft to service, quote, in the next several days. But this is going to lead to public, you know, a loss of public confidence. United has, you know, a lot of these aircraft in its fleet. There's huge, you know, commercial implications right now because hundreds of 
of flights have been canceled both by Alaska and by United. And overall, I just think it dramatically undermines confidence in Boeing and in its capabilities, which in if you're in the future and you're one of these airlines, which plane are you buying? You know, you have to, this is a big question. So we'll see, you know, in terms of what the overall fallout is on this. I recommend following that news outlet, The Air Current. They've been doing fantastic reporting. All signs right now point to some sort of manufacturing problem. Would you get on one of these planes right now? Uh, well, it's not, we can't right now because uh, they're all grounded. If the NTSB cleared it, yeah, I, I think I would. I've got enough confidence. The 737, what is it, Max 9? 737 Max 9. I, it, look, I mean, if the NTSB says that the issue <laughs> is the door plug and they tighten it up, yeah. You know why I'm, I'm relatively confident is that a piece of that plane blew out of the sky and they still were able to land it. In, in fact, you could look at it the other way and say, wow, what a miracle of engineering. Yeah, but you as know, you said, like, if they were a little further yeah. up, I mean, you know, the story out of, would be very different. Nine out of 200 might have died. This is pretty good odds. You like that like, <laughs> <laughs> I've gotten so much more risk averse yeah. as I've gotten uh, older. Like something about how, like after I had kids, uh-huh. I became so much more risk averse. I don't think so. Well, I'd be so- thinking about it the whole time I was yeah. on that plane. And it'd just be, even if everything was fine, which mm. overwhelming chances are everything would be fine. I'd be so miserable yeah. during that flight that I couldn't take you it. You might be right. But as you know, I'm a credit card fanatic and chasing airline status. So there's no way I'd even be seated in that row. Of course, <laughs> I'd be at the bulkhead seat where I belong. Um, <laughs> don't pay for them, to be clear. You never pay for it. You always use your points and you use these things in order to get it. I should do a whole monologue at some point about how to game the system, but that's a different conversation. Turning over to the media, there's another casualty of Israel on the airwaves of American television. Mehdi Hassan, the MSNBC host whose show was canceled, has announced he is officially leaving, it appears by choice, after MSNBC leadership took that decision. Here's what he had to say. It's been an absolute blast doing this live show on MSNBC for the past three years with an amazing team of producers behind me and with all of you watching at home. It's been a privilege. It's been a pleasure. But as we begin 2024 with an election coming, a war still ongoing and too many Trump trials, honestly, to even keep track of. And with this show going away, I've decided that it's time for me to look for a new challenge. Tonight is not just my final episode of The Mehdi Hassan Show. It's my last day with MSNBC. Yes, I've decided to leave. To be clear, I am so proud, so, so proud of what we've achieved on this show, on this network. And I can't thank you all enough for tuning in and for your support and for your feedback. But as I say, new year, new plans. So my respect for Mehdi has gone up significantly. There was no way, in my opinion, he could stay there. Untenable situation. If he did, I mean, imagine being canceled for something he said. And specifically, whenever it's such a contentious issue that he clearly cares about a lot. Oh, obviously, And then they yeah. fired his ass. I mean, yeah. it's just, it's outrageous. So good for him. He, he should have left. Yeah. That's the right thing to do. You, you have no other choice in this business. And there's consequences yeah. for him to leaving. I mean, Medi will never work in yeah. mainstream media. I mean, also media again. I assume he has children. Absolutely. Family, financially. Like, pay um, a mortgage. Like, and I, who knows what yeah. provisions there are in his contract about right. how long he has to stay on the sidelines and a non-compete and a non-disclosure and all of that crap. It's not like you can just, you know, unfortunately, these contracts are very binding on talent, probably in a way that's illegal and needs to be challenged. But in Definitely any case. Definitely should be, yeah. Um, you know, 
many people are pointing out, I think rightly so, that this cancellation of his show, which ultimately forces his hand and forces him to leave, comes after he has been a very clear uh, dissident voice on the network in favor of Palestinian rights. And what Mehdi is kind of famous for, which we've shown you here a number of times, is he is genuinely a very effective interviewer. Um, and, you know, he pressed people like John Bolton on his show, for example. But there is, this is a rumor, so I don't know if this is accurate, but um, there's a lot of suggestions that the decision to cancel his show came after a particularly contentious interview that we covered here on this show because it made significant news mm -hmm. um, in which he pressed a Bibi Netanyahu spokesperson on air um, about what they were doing in Gaza. Let's take a listen to a little bit of that. It'll be good for the people of Gaza who deserve better than this terrible authoritarian well, <laughs> extreme Hamas regime. The people of Gaza are still alive. As I say, more than 11,000 people dead, reported dead, 4,000 children. I just want to pull up on the screen. Hamas. Say, yeah, Hamas's you say, numbers. You, Hamas's you say numbers. Hamas's num you say Hamas's numbers. I should point out, just pull up on the screen. In the last two major Gaza conflicts, 2009 and 2014, the Israeli military's death dolls matched Hamas's health ministry death toll. So, and the UN human rights groups all agree that those numbers are credible. They control all the images coming out of Gaza. Have you seen one picture of a single dead Hamas terrorist in the fighting in Gaza? Not one. Is that yeah, by accident have, or is that because Hamas Mark, can control, Hamas Mark, can control the information you asked me a question and you Gaza. said you would be brief. I, have, I haven't, you're right, but I have seen lots of children with my own lying eyes being pulled from the rubble. Uh, because so they're the pictures Hamas wants you to see. Exactly my point, they're, dead, they're, Mark, they're the pictures also, Hamas wants you to see. But there are also people no, that your government has uh, killed. You accept that, right? You've killed children or do you deny no, that? No, I do not. I do not. I do not. First of all, you don't know how those people died, those children. Oh, wow. First of all, we don't want to see a we single do. child <laughs> killed. Why does that give you permission to accept Hamas's numbers? I don't understand. I, I didn't ask about Hamas's numbers. I said to you that your military... No, but you were, you were quoting to me before Hamas numbers, Mehdi. You were quoting entire, to me Hamas's numbers. The, because the entire UN and the human rights community and the American intelligence community on Friday said they trust those numbers. But you're dodging my question, Mark. So you can see very heated. That's an extraordinary moment where yeah, uh, Mehdi says, you are denying that you killed these children. Oh, I, I don't know how they died. Yeah. I mean, for that is that was wild. There was another moment in that interview we covered as well, mm -hmm. where he was pressing him on some of the uh, misinformation they got caught putting out. Specifically, remember this, what was just a calendar that was on the wall that they were like, oh, this is where Hamas is saying, you know, they're logging in for their hostage watching duties. So he's very effective at this. Uh, it was shortly after this that his show gets canceled. We also know that the uh, you know head of the ADL had gone on MSNBC mm -hmm. and was going after Mehdi in particular, but all three of the uh, Muslim anchors uh, who have been critical of the Israeli response in Gaza. We also know that all three of those Muslim anchors were sidelined in different ways shortly after October 7th. So it surely seems like Mehdi is being punished for actually being good at his job and making powerful people uncomfortable. As people can go watch, I got a lot of criticisms of the man, but I won't lay it here because I admire him for leaving. I think that's what you should do, especially when somebody is trying to censor you like this. And I genuinely, even though I disagree with him, I wish him the best. And I think that he, he'll he probably do well in the independent space and you know we're happy to have him on the show anytime. Yeah, so, if you, so, you dissent know. too much, right. cause too much friction with powerful people, cable news wants nothing to do with you. And Mehdi is just the latest casualty of that. I think that we can save very confidently. Very sad. Okay, we got a great guest standing by, Jeff Stein. Let's get to it. Live Nation presents Concert Week. 
Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash ConcertWeek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Excited to be joined today by Jeff Stein, who is a reporter for The Washington Post and great friend of the show. But more importantly for today host of a new podcast called American Carnage that is on radical abolitionist John Brown, which is fantastic. I really recommend it to people. Great to have you, Jeff. Thank you guys so much for having me on. It's exciting to join independent media. Oh, yeah, yes, absolutely. Yes. Welcome. Congratulations. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the show. Um, before I ask the first question, let's just get a taste of what this podcast is all about. We have a bit of the trailer that you released. Let's take a listen. John Brown's body lies moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a moldering in him to be a soldier in the army of the Lord. He's gone to be a soldier in the army of the Lord. His soul is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Explain to people what fascinates you about him and what were some of the questions you were trying to answer in this podcast series. Do you guys recognize that movie? No, uh, no, from, I didn't actually. It's from um, like a terrible, atrocious, impossible to watch uh, Reagan movie from the 40s. Oh, it's really? It's about like okay. glorifying the uh-huh. post-slavery side in the war. Oh, interesting. Oh, God. Yeah. And What's yet, it called? Um, uh, I'll send I'll, you it's it later. Okay. I'll look at um, it later. Yeah. And yet, despite the attempt to make John Brown look crazy in mm-hmm. that film— he looks awesome. <laughs> He's really interesting and really cool and really fascinating. Mm. Um, and I think the reason we got into this and the reason I got into this was because I don't think that pol- political science is a thing. Hmm. I kind of agree with you, but Pe- why? People think yeah. of political science is almost like taking an approach like chemistry or physics to how political change happens, sure. how political processes unfold. Yes. Mm. And... The reality is that it sounds like you might agree that, from my perspective at least, historical events involve so many variables yeah. and so many inputs. And it is impossible to try to get it down to the beaker and the lab equipment that you mm. could in a chem lab, right? Mm-hmm. And so the historians want to look at at what happened in the past and try to draw links rather than try to say, what are the, the elements that create a historical moment or create a moment? And... 
with that in mind, I think the reason John Brown is so interesting is because he forces us to reckon with what is actually what causes change in this country. And I actually think you guys understand this in, intuitively at, at a real level where we have this conception, right, this idea that that is very much in like the official Washington world where I operate, where people are presented every four years like a list of ideas and then their agency consists of going to the ballot box and being mm. like, I like this or I like that. Like, mm. You would look at a restaurant, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. oh, here's the menu. But what that elides, right, is like, what is going on on the menu? How do we decide like what the political process is giving people the choice between? Mm. And when you look at John Brown's story, it's this question of how did this issue that when John Brown was first emerging on the scene was not even really a German people's heads. I mean, abolitionism, much less, you know, the racial egalitarianism that John Brown believed in was so unbelievably yeah, it's, fringe. It's like four, 3% of the population. More fringe yeah. than, than the people you guys have on yeah. here. Yeah, um, <laughs> you're right. People like yourself. Yeah. <laughs> people like me, yeah. Um, and so what is the process, the historical process by which someone tries to move that, to shift that? Mm -hmm. um, and that, that's what I found so riveting and so captivating. How do you... Uh, W.B. Du Bois, his um, biography of Brown, it's interesting because some of the historians today, I think, are much more accurate than like the historians from 50, 60, 100 years ago yes, as Du Bois is. Yes. But they don't, they don't write in a way that touches the soul, mm -hmm. the way that someone like Du Bois or James Baldwin can. And what Du Bois says is that what Brown reveals is that historical processes really shift by um, people who are able to activate the part of our consciences that are not explicable parts of the political process. Mm. So things that we understand intuitively are immoral or wrong, somewhere deep in our core, it takes someone in the public, maybe a media, maybe an activist, maybe um, a radical abolitionist who starts invading federal armories, it takes someone to activate our latent sense of morality and justice. And that the idea that political change is instead driven by people at the top giving options that then people vote on is missing how important that activation process is. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because Brown was, you could see it, there's many ways, right? There's like the great man theories, there's a structuralist theory, there's like many others. I basically subscribe to all three, which is why I also don't believe in political science. Uh, <laughs> but if you're to go and you're gonna look at it, we could see like why Brown, right? Because Nat Turner's Rebellion is what, 20 years before? Yeah, it's crushed, crushed completely, right? And actually the Northern public is like, oh my God, this is horrifying. Why is it that Brown himself, like right when it happened, it was like the perfect moment to awaken exactly like you said and to also draw the right uh, contrasts, right? So like for Brown, and there's everybody, it's so crazy when you look at his story. It's like Robert E. Lee is involved in the John Brown. Mm -hmm. You know, question, you're like, oh my God, like what a precursor. And then- And John Wilkes Booth is out. Exactly, you got John Wilkes Booth. It's like, how is this all like, it, it, it's- like a story, it's like a movie, and yet it was real life. So what did you find when you were teasing that out as to why his spoke to people at that moment when, like I said, Turner and all these other folks, it didn't work out And give all. people a little TLDR yeah. if we don't, if we have yeah, some non-John yes, Brown sure. buffs in the audience. So yeah. in um, on October 16th, 1859, John Brown and about 20 men will invade a federal armory at Harper's Ferry, Virginia. The idea of this raid is that Brown is going to, I mean, as you said, it is cinematic and yeah, literally, open, which is why it makes such a good story for a podcast. Right. Brown and his little guerrilla army, he wanted more men, but he really, he just decided that the place that they were they were training was, was at risk of being exposed. So he and about 20 men will invade this federal armory at Harper's Ferry. 
and they will um, go around the nearby plantations liberating slaves, including the slaves owned by um, the great-grandnephew of George Washington. They take the, um, these two amazing heirlooms, uh, a pistol that the Marquis de Lafayette had given George Washington mm. and a sword that um, Frederick the Great had given George Washington. And they take those and they free George Washington's descendant slaves. <laughs> and then they come back to Harper's Ferry and they've taken this town. And that is when this moment that I've been really focused on recently is like, why doesn't John Brown leave? Because mm-hmm. he, the whole conception of this raid is that they're going to take these freed slaves are going to ride off into the um, Appalachian Mountains. And from there, they will launch little raids on southern plantations, free more slaves, and eventually build this massive black colony that will destabilize the slave system, which is ambitious, certainly, but not super crazy, I don't think. It has a, it has some logic to it. It has a logic, logic to it. it. it has right. an inter- I mean, I wouldn't... It has more logic than staying in the armory, getting your sons killed, and then getting on trial. Yeah, but, what are you doing, John? Yeah. Get out. <laughs> um, but what really happens... You know, when Brown stays, then the militias of Harper's Ferry, the white militias, come, and then the the federal um, government sends the U.S. Marines, as you were saying, under mm-hmm. Robert E. Lee, later the leader of the Confederacy, to crush John Brown. And what happens in the immediate aftermath is kind of similar to what you see after Nat Turner, where people are outraged and they want this guy killed. And even the northern abolitionists who were his allies say, oh, maybe there's legal jeopardy here. I want nothing to do with this. And so you have this massive immediate reaction that this guy is bad. And then partly because he's white, right, unlike Nat Turner. Yes. But also partly because he's able to articulate himself in a way Nat Turner never is. John Brown in the aftermath of the raid is going to be put on trial, which again, Nat Turner does not have this luxury of having a public audience where he can articulate and sound clear and level-headed and appeal. And then he becomes this martyr, right? Because he's facing his death. He's just watched his sons be brutally maimed and die in his arms. And this, the tragedy of the story and the fact that I think we can get into this. I have so much to say about John Brown, as you can tell, but he really was not that violent at Harper's Ferry. Mm-hmm. We can debate his actions in Kansas, which are more morally ambivalent, I think. But in Harper's Ferry, I think part of the reason that he gets trapped there is because he is concerned for the well-being of his white hostages. And he treats them well. And this becomes part of the historical record after the fact. Mm. A handful of people do die at Harper's Ferry, but he's really in a defensive crouch. I mean, his attitude is like, let me liberate as many slaves and escape. And they're not going around. I mean, I think a lot of people have this misapprehension of Brown as this you know, crazy white boy who went around just slaughtering slaveholders is much more, he was not intending on killing a lot of plantation owners in the South. And so that combined with the fact that Virginia, you know, while Brown still is like suffering from um, wounds to his head, he has this massive kidney injury. He's, there's a scene where he's in in court because the slaveholders are so insane that they insist on speeding up this trial, even though he is unable to stand up. So they wheel this cot into the courtroom and he has to pull the blanket over his face. So his stoicism in that moment and on the gallows where even the Confederates will recognize that he was incredibly brave in the face of death, that Mm -hmm. sort of like sense of valor, that sort of machismo helps turn his image. And I think that is a big part of the reason that the nation was ready to receive his message in a way that they weren't pronouncing. Yeah, I, I absolutely think you're right. And then what do you see as the reverberating impacts of that? I mean, almost what you're describing is like beca- through what came to be seen as his valor, selflessness, his willing to die, his willing to sacrifice his own kids on behalf of a cause that he saw as being so righteous 
that it really caused people to sort of awaken in them their own sense of injustice and, and change the opinion. So how does that reverberate throughout history? How does that help create the conditions that you know lead to the Civil War? Um, it's a great question. I mean, John Brown, had, there's this fascinating, like, self-fulfilling dynamic that begins to happen in the South where the South is really determined after, even though John Brown is so exceptional as an abolitionist, he and his 20 guys are so unlike all the other abolitionists who, you know, William Lloyd Garrison is the other most prominent abolitionist at this point, and he is an adamant pacifist, and he looks yes. down on what John Brown is doing and thinks it's all rubbish. And so John Brown is really exceptional, but because the South wants to make John Brown out to be, like, the prototypical abolitionist and northerner, mm. they begin accusing everyone mm -hmm. else in the north of being an abolitionist, like John Brown. And so there's this uh, weird effect that begins to happen where because the South starts saying these insane things about all the northern abolitionists, equating them to John Brown, eventually the northern abolitionists are like, well, maybe, <laughs> maybe we do believe in him because their response is so disproportionate yes. and so insane. Mm. Yeah, I think it's actually, so just to you know, pick up on that, really what happened is that the fire eaters, which are the people who wanted to get out of the union and to have secession, they saw it as a validation of their worst fears. And they're like, well, if they're going to do it to us anyways, we may as well arm up and we may as well secede. Yeah. And then people were well, hold on a second, you can't actually secede here. And it's like, and if you're going to, you're not going to take all this federal property and all that with you. And really, the, it increased, I think, militarism in the South, which in turn, like you said, showed the North. They were like, okay, we genuinely have no other option but yeah, resort the paranoia to paranoia became a self-fulfilling prophecy. Exactly. Yeah. Because when the South was insistent on seeing everyone in the North as John Brown, it they started doing things in response to that right. that actually turned people in the North into yeah. militants, right? Because the South started arming themselves. Literally. Yeah. yeah. And I got into like a Twitter yeah. argument with someone who was like, it was super rational for the South to secede. I mean, maybe, maybe because like – at that point when Lincoln won in 1860, mm -hmm. you see like the end of the expansion of slavery. Yes. And so like maybe the political balance of power is going to shift in a way that that is, um, you know, spells the death knell of, of the South and therefore they should take their shot and try to get England on their side of the war. And maybe that's like their best gamble. But to me, like you look at the stated intention of Lincoln and this is why, I mean, I I'm curious what you guys think about this because mm. to me, like, the idea, the answer to the question, who freed the slaves, right? I mean, you like, you have the Lincoln Monument up there, but mm -hmm. it's like, it's Lincoln. That's what people say. Mm -hmm. Lincoln didn't want, Lincoln was not talking about freeing the slaves until events forced his hands. Like, do you know who really wanted to free the slaves? It was John Brown. Mm. And the idea- Wait, so are you Douglas. telling me Nikki Haley lied to me in the Civil War was actually about slavery? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Anytime Nikki Haley wants to come on American Carnage, would be yeah, she's honestly glad to have her discuss podcast. John Brown. Jeff, how do you grapple with this moral question that you present at the beginning of your podcast of basically like, how do you think about someone who some people would define as a domestic terrorist, John Brown, especially like you said, for the actions that helped spark this uh, bleeding Kansas period, which was incredibly, you know, bloody and violent. Um, how do you grapple with someone who is like violent, but on behalf of a clearly just cause? I think it's a difficult question. I mean, we get into like all the his competing historical debates in the podcast. Just very quickly, do I have time to explain yeah. what happened in Kansas? Yeah. So the fate of the expansion of slavery will fall to Kansas. I know this is kind of boring, but in 1854, Congress says 
They passed the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which gives the rights of the people in the territory to decide, to decide via election whether that territory enters the Union as a free or slave state. And that's really important because it will determine the balance of power within Congress. And at this point, the pro-slavery border ruffians from Missouri interfere with the elections. They steal the elections. They um, completely pollute democracy, and they start going around killing the anti-slavery side. And so that's kind of the stakes of what happens when John Brown is fed up by all this, and he gets a credible threat that some pro-slavery guys from Missouri might go around and annihilate, is the term they use, him and his sons. Mm. And at that point, Brown decides to stop this pacifistic campaign, to finally take retribution. He and his men will execute five men in the middle of the night with these swords, gashing their body and cutting them. It's all grisly and bloody. And if there's any Dan Carlin hardcore history fans out here, yes, I promise yeah. you'll not be disappointed <laughs> in our podcast. But the question becomes, right, like was the killing of five people who were not slaveholders, not plantation owners, not even particularly crucial to the pro-slavery side in, in Kansas, were they, um, was that a, a justified killing? And I would say the majority of historians that I read for this pro read for this project say that they're not. But mm. the ones that that do say he was justified will really point out that you know what was also terrorism, you know what was also violence was slavery. Yeah. And we talk about Brown's killings as this form of like terroristic violence. And these historians who are more sympathetic to Brown will argue and I think quite understandably that we never talk about the slaveholders or the founding fathers who kept people violently against their will as a form of terrorism. Mm. But how is it not, right? Like, it's yeah, a, and so a if you consider slavery to be a form of warfare, which seems legitimate, at least mm -hmm. in theory to me, then why is Brown responding to that terrorism by killing these guys, well, not a form of, of like, engaging the battlefield. That's the that's the counterpoint. It also belies the fact that there was massive violence on the pro-slavery side too, to kick all these abolitionist voters out. Like, out of Kansas. Yeah, uh, yeah exactly. Yeah. Right. I mean, massive, I mean, yeah. absolute bloodshed. So I can sit here and talk about this all day. Uh, we're running out of time. So Jeff, where can people find the podcast? What should they do? Rate, subscribe? What do you uh, mean? American Carnage on okay. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Patreon. If you want to throw three bucks our way, we'd be super grateful Excellent. as well, but no no pressure. We'll it's, put a link down in the description. It's really interesting. It's obviously very relevant to the current moment in terms of the violent in Gaza and, you know, discussions about Hamas and a lot of the same sort of like moral and ethical questions. I'm not going to like say it's equivalent, but there are some echoes here. writes a few years ago that John Brown is the 19th century Hamas and Hezbollah equivalent. Oh, wow. Oof, that's, and that's too I will, hot I will leave it to, yeah. you have to listen to the podcast. Really <laughs> He's going to try right. to keep his Washington Post job as well <laughs> yeah, and right. not fully comment on that particular dynamic. Don't step in that. That's um, our job. But Jeff, it, it really is fascinating. I'm learning a lot from uh, listening to it. And it's causing me to think a lot too, like I said, about the current moral quandary. So thank you so much. It's great to see you. Congratulations. Great true, to see you, man. True pleasure to be on. Thanks, guys. Good job. Yeah, thank you. All right. We'll see you guys later. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. 
With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.